Hello and welcome to Hope Interrupted, the podcast, another week. I'm Byron McCauley, your co-host with Jennifer Mooney, the host of this program. And we are so excited about today's episode. We've been away for a little while, Jennifer. We both have been on vacation, me to the Mississippi Gulf Coast and you to the Grand Canyon. Is that correct? That is correct. One I of hiked, the seventh, eighth yeah. wonders of the world. Is that, yeah, is that and right? I, I hiked into the Grand Canyon. That's right. <laughs> wow. I can't say the Mississippi Gulf Coast with the with its murky waters and delicious shrimp is a seventh or eighth wonder, eighth wonder of the world. But it tell you what, it was darn it was darn good to get away from stuff. So it's good to it's good to see you again. Um Jennifer, you know, we talk about Hope Interrupted in the podcast, but the impetus for this podcast, of course, is the book that you and I wrote last year, uh, every day for six months in an epistle style. And it has really been, I've been so impressed at the feedback that we're getting from that. I just want to take a little moment to to thank you again for pushing me on that because it was cathartic and I, I actually miss writing with you right now. Uh, I miss writing quite a bit and I'm finding I'm still taking notes about things we need to write about because we're going back to it at some point when life isn't so frenetic. Um, But you're right. We've had, um, when we get to hopeful moments at the end of the show, um, I'll share, I'll share one. It's going to deal with the book, but it is going extremely well. And it's been great to reconnect with people from our past, which has been a big theme. And today's guest is one of those. Yes. Introduce our guest because I'm a fan of, of his and I'm a fan of, of the things that he's doing with his life. And you'll understand that the more we talk to him. I would like to introduce today Craig Kirby, and I just had a birthday, so I'm 58 now, so this is taking us back. Craig and I met at Albion College in Albion, Michigan. We both graduated from there in 1985, and on campus, he was a force to be reckoned with. One, we were two of the only Buckeyes on campus. Um, Two, he became student body president. Uh, last time I saw Craig was on the floor of the Democratic National Convention uh, when Barack Obama was nominated to become president of the United States. And throughout his life since Albion, he has been highly involved in the political arena, including a lot of time with the Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson. And those of you who've read the book know I often end my entry saying, keep hope alive. It's probably one of my favorite things to say to anyone anytime. When I sign books, I sign them, keep hope alive. And uh, it's something that I really believe in. And Craig has also, he's got an organization now called My Golf, My Future, My Game, which he'll talk about today, uh, which he says was, built by a lot of the learnings and the inspiration he had from Reverend Jackson. So with that, I would like to introduce one of the most exceptional members of my graduating class, an exceptional Ohioan, and neither of us are in Ohio anymore. He lives in Washington, D.C., Craig Kirby. Welcome. Well, Jennifer, thank you. Byron, thank you both so much. It's, It's really ironic. Today, I actually am in Ohio. I'm in Dayton, Ohio, as a matter of fact. Um, and I'll tell you, as life goes full circle, our daughter, who's 17, took her first college visit 
says Central State University yesterday, followed by Wilberforce University. And then Saturday will be in your hometown of Cincinnati at Xavier University. Wow. Congratulations. All Thank great, great choices. Thank you. Thank you so much. She's got uh, 14 schools on her list. So <laughs> wow. there are 11 other places to go. But before I go any further, let me applaud you both on your writing, on your friendship, on Hope Interrupted. And I share that because your book really is about destiny and not history. And what I mean by that is I've always shared with people the significance of aligning yourself with people who fit your destiny and not your history. Your histories are as opposite as night and day, as black and white, as salt and pepper. But your destiny is as common as promise, hope, creativity, and genuine love for one another. So kudos to you both for, for taking the time and making the time to create what so many people are enjoying, me being one of those folks. Well, thank you. Byron and I will both tell you, we say regularly, it was clearly a labor of love, this book. And we were friends before we wrote this book, but I know Byron as well as I know anyone in my own family at this point. We've shared so much. And, and he is, I, I mean, I routinely, and I'm not into hashtags, but I do hashtag brother from another mother. <laughs> yeah. because, because we do, uh, we, we do, the book explains how much we share, how on its face you might see two people who seem completely different. But when you get to know people, as Byron says, I might meet someone who's a bigot, but then you find out I love my kids. He loves his kids. And there are ways you can bridge those gaps between people, even when they seem extreme. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. They're, those are such, such great words, words to share with us, Greg, to pour into us like that. Um, you have have really, you know, I'm so, I'm so moved by the fact that your daughter is actually looking at schools in Ohio. Um, currently, you know, Ohio kind of looks at itself. We've we kind of had a little bit of a of an inferiority complex over the years as sort of what they call flyover territory. So that makes me really uh, proud to know that your daughter coming from DC, you know, is, is, is really sort of interested in a couple of our great universities. I would love, yes. Yeah, so, so I would love to hear more about how that how that search is going because Jennifer and I talk about our kids in this book a lot. Right. <laughs> We've gone through that. Exactly. That's why I wanted to mention that. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's yeah, it's I mean it's exciting, challenging and sad when they leave, but once they leave they're so ready to go and be their own people. Uh, my kids are the oldest of everyone in this conversation and you know, you, sometimes you miss the days when they were underfoot, but you also know that um, it's time for them to have their own lives. Right. So why don't we start with talking about what you're doing right now, which I think is most relevant. And I'm also going to say, please tell our audience how to donate or become involved with what you're doing. So he is the founder, Craig Kirby, of Golf My Future, My Game. 
That is it, uh, Jennifer. And um, Golf My Future, My Game, we are a foundation that began quietly in 2008 with a commitment, mission, and purpose. And our mission is to create strategic alliance initiatives for education and career development in the business and sport of golf. So at the end of the day, um, our three areas, we want to pique an interest in the game of golf with communities of color, with underrepresented communities. We want to create a connection to the game of golf through their lens, not the lens of some 60, 65-year-old white man or woman who's played golf their entire life at the country club. And then we also highlight the economic opportunities that this $84 billion a year industry has. There are a ton of jobs in the industry that folks like me aren't aware of. And so we make certain that that game of golf is in their toolkit, that they're comfortable with the game. They're comfortable when they receive an invitation to play the game of golf and they go take advantage of it. That's what we do. I mean, it's really simple. And as I share with people, it's a win-win for everybody. I mean, each and every day I wake up, I work with both the privileged and the marginalized. And my goal is to make the marginalized a bit more privileged and the privileged to have an understanding of what marginalization is. And we also make certain that we provide options for kids because once you have an option, you can make a choice. It's when you don't have options that you can't make choices. And then finally, it's our goal that we provide our underrepresented children with a passport to the world of business via the sport of golf. So that's what we do. You know, it's interesting, and then I'm going to let Byron talk because our audience doesn't know, but we can see each other. So I can see Byron getting ready to say something. I spent 20 years as a corporate executive. I was a non-golfer. My whole management team was white man with um, one black man who was actually who had played football for Ohio State and was an excellent golfer. Mm -hmm. I didn't golf. I was required to take golf lessons because the men I worked with wanted to have meetings on the golf course and I was the obstacle. So, so I ended up, they paid for me to take golf lessons to be part of this thing. But I know exactly what you're saying because not everyone is born into a situation where golf is a part of life. And I'm sure um, for many of the underprivileged kids, um, going to a country club and learning to play golf and being part of that would be hugely intimidating. Byron, what do you want to say? And then we'll let Greg talk. I do want to talk about a situation I was in um, with a job interview where I was taken to a local Southern country club um, and, uh, I wasn't super good at golf. I was playing pretty well, but I happened to hit the ball into a local, um, partners of a local, uh, uh, county judge. And, uh, and there were, what I didn't realize at the time, there were just all these kind of, there was, there were so many gyrations around what had to happen for an apology to happen. Um, it was a private country club and, and I was nervous, you know, I'm a, I was a pretty good golfer, but when I think about that day, I was nervous around and I'm, and I'm, and I'm a guy who'd been around, you know, the, the crowd, I wasn't of the crowd, but I'd been around the crowd, 
So Craig, what some of the things that moved me when you talked about, you know, you talked about access and you talked about, you know, the business of golf and you talked about the deals that are made. Um, there's also the, the area of just being comfortable with the environment. Exactly. Exactly. And that was one reason. I mean, that's one thing that we focus on. We focus on building that cocoon so that our kids have that comfort level. You know, again, an expert in anything, anything was once a beginner. And people need to realize that we all come, we all come to a place from some place. And Byron, you shared your uneasiness when you were at that country club. Last year, we were at a country club outside of Washington. And one of my kids, one of my young ladies, who is an excellent golfer, I mean, I really would not be surprised to see her on the LPGA tour, but she walked up to me very quietly and she said, Mr. Craig, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I belong here. And I looked at her and I said, Tatiana, let me tell you something. You belong here. You act like you belong here. And when I said that to her, Jennifer, I remembered the 1988 convention in Atlanta. And there was a woman by the name of Reverend Willie Taplin Barrow, who was with Reverend Jackson. She was all of about four foot eight, but had the power of a woman six foot nine. She stood on a chair and she spoke to all the Jackson delegates. And she said, let me tell y'all something. We might not have ever been here before, but we're here now. And we're going to act like we're here. We're going to act like we belong here and we're going to be here. And I'll never forget that. And that's, again, what I share with all of my kids, all of our kids. You may not have been there, but the only way for you to be there is to act as though you are supposed to be there. Absolutely. And I know that feeling. And while I'm not African-American, I am a non-religious Jew who wasn't allowed into country clubs I, th I think they allegedly have changed that at most places now, but my family didn't go to one. That wasn't part of my life. Byron golfed in a place in Cincinnati recently, and I told him when I was in high school in that community, my family wasn't allowed in, and he was over there golfing, and we kind of chuckled, but, you know, it wasn't anything to laugh about back then. So I get that. I mean, I get that feeling that the kids would have. It's um, intimidating, and good for you. I mean, good for you, because we all know that the – Big decisions are generally not made in the boardroom. They're made over cocktails on golf courses in private clubs. And I don't really see that changing. It's not. You know, I, again, I tell these kids, the golf course, Byron, as you heard, I mean, as you know, the golf, the golf course, excuse me, is the green boardroom. That's it. It's where business relationships are created and decisions are made, as Jennifer just shared. So you grew up in Dayton, Ohio. You went to college. We went to college in Michigan. Mm -hmm. uh, were you a golfer growing up? No, I was not a golfer growing up. And that's one thing that fuels what I do each and every day. I literally growing up passed a golf course at least twice a day. It was Miami Valley Golf Course, beautiful Donald Ross course right there on um, Salem Avenue and Philadelphia Drive. 
And my parents, my teachers, my mentors, my coaches, no one ever suggested I play golf. It was the traditional sports, football, basketball, track, baseball, et cetera. And it wasn't until I was a sophomore at Albion and I was at Albion College, excuse me, and I'm sitting in the room in the living room and these three white guys walking down the stairs, they walk into the living room and they go, hey, Kirby, we're about to go play around the golf. Would you like to join us? And I was too embarrassed to tell them that I had never played. So I said, yeah, sure, let's go. You know, we get in the car, we're riding to the golf course. I'm in the back seat. Like, what in the world <laughs> have I done? We get to the number one tee box and they go, all right, Kirby, you're up. I said, oh, no. Uh-uh. I said, you know, brains has to go before beauty. I mean, I had to make up something because I had to look at them. I mean, I watched what they did. And at that point in my life, I was an athlete, so I could pay attention. And I figured if, you know, let me just see what they're doing. So I watched them and um, I went out, it was my turn up at the tee box, hit it right down the middle, about 80 yards. <laughs> you know, I was happy just to go straight. And as the round continued, I got a little better. I got, I was so good or so good, at, relatively speaking, that they asked me if I wanted to come the following week and play. And I went, yeah, sure, you know, let's go. <laughs> So, and this is an important part of this story because when I was out there that second week, that next round, I was on the seventh fairway and another guy, Mark Fox, I don't know if you remember him, Jennifer, or not. I remember his name. Yeah. Steve Fox was his brother. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Mark Fox, Mark Fox, excuse me, sees me on the seventh hole, Byron, and he goes, Craig, I didn't know you played golf. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, you know, I've been playing for a while. And he goes, what are you doing this summer? And I look at him and I go, Mark, I don't know why. He goes, well, how would you like to work on a cruise ship? And I said, excuse me? He goes, yeah, my dad just brought interest in his cruise line and we're hiring people. And I figured if you liked golf, I'm excuse me, if you like golf, you'd like the water. I, in my mind, I'm like, what the hell? I mean, what, it, anyway, so I said, yeah, Mark, what do I have to do? He goes, man, just give me your resume. So I gave him my resume literally a month later, a maitre d' on a cruise line. Now, this cruise line was based out of Chicago. So it went out for lunch cruises and dinner cruises. But, I mean, I made $8,000 in five weeks. This was back in 1982. Yeah, that was a whole lot of money then. That was a whole lot of money. <laughs> But the point is, is that it happened because I just happened to be on a golf course. And Byron, you know, Jennifer, you know, when you're out there, things happen. And that's what I want our kids to know. Step out your comfort zone. Do something that you wouldn't do because something will happen to you that you never knew could happen. I mean, golf is more than a game. Golf is a lifetime experience with unparalleled possibilities. With the boss who asked me to take golf lessons, who was a good man, but he loved to play golf and wanted to make sure everyone on his management team could be out there with him for the meetings. He said to me, and I've never known if it's BS or not, but I liked him, so I kind of think it might be true. He said, you learn a lot about people on the golf course. Yes, you do. 
And that was his big excuse for taking the management team out. Yes, but yes, I've always thought about that. Yeah, he's right about that. That's really one of the things I wanted to point out too. Um, all the symbols associated with golf are transferable to life. All the the sort of signifiers, honesty, <laughs> fair play, um, aggressiveness, temperament, all those things. And I will tell you, I have played golf with a person that I thought was going to become an associate and they, and, and we did not become associates because he cheated every single hole on the golf course. He marked down a score much lower than what he had. I counted a nine one time. He said, I got a five. Oh my. Okay. You know, and you let it go because right. Hey, that's you. You're playing against yourself. You're not playing against me, but like, that that's what that's the thing that I think is sort of that that's a wonderful teacher for me and that's why I like golf so much because you're you're really playing for yourself not anybody else you're playing against the course yep and if you can have the discipline I think when you're playing against the course and not lie or not become super flustered or whatever right then that that's going to be an indication of your character. Well said. You know, Craig, Byron and I, our book is really a lot about tackling sensitive subjects. And he and I, in the time we've been friends, have been really bold about just asking each other the questions that no one wants to ask. And I have one for you that I always wondered about back in the days we were in college. Mm-hmm. Albion was not a diverse campus. I felt like an outsider there, even though I was walking around in white skin just because of the religion I had been brought up in. And I routinely heard anti-Semitic comments and, and I felt, and I joined, um, excuse me, but a very waspy sorority that did not have people like me in it. So I must, I always assumed, and I wasn't going to ask you that when we were 19 years old. Hey, Craig, how's it feel to be you on this campus? Right. But I'm asking you now, a campus of 2,000 people, mostly white, mostly from upper middle class suburbs, frankly, mostly from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like to be, I know what it was like to be me there, but what was it like to be you? Well, you know, first off, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that in two, we'll give you two answers to that. One some people would look at that as a constraint, but constraints often unleash the greatest creativity. I will say that. And in two, my father and my mother taught me that a man, woman, is defined by their actions and not by what they believe to be true. And so that enabled me to do the things I did. I mean, A, I felt I belonged. B, I knew I belonged. C, because I belonged, I decided I was going to take over and run things. And you did. And I did. (laughs) That's amazing. You did. And I mean, I I ended up in a significant role on the newspaper. I mean, we we did these things. And I know inside my skin, I kind of, there were things I wanted to say to people that, that I didn't. Right. But, 
but I understand the whole, you know, Byron and I jo will joke that sometimes people talk to us because we're kind of cute. Well, you know, back, back then, I know I was probably doing that too. Yeah, it, you know, it, it it's funny because we made it. I mean, we made it what we wanted it to be. And, you know, Byron, you know, we used to have huge parties at fraternity houses and in rooms and everything. And I'll never forget um, one, there was this one woman who wanted to be involved with student government. And so we were at a party and everybody kept saying, oh, well, you need to talk to Craig Kirby. And people would come up to me and say, hey, Craig, this woman, this girl over here is looking for you. And I'm like, okay, well, if she wants me, she'll come and say something. Well, she would look at me, but she, I, in her mind, there was no possible way that I was Craig Kirby. I was not the person that everybody was talking about. So that Tuesday, when we had our our scheduled meeting, I um, our office had two doors. We had the front entrance and then we had a back entrance, which is where my office was. Well, I came in the front entrance and she was seated and I went to the back. Um, I took the garbage out and I just came back to that entrance. Well, when they let her into the to my office, I come in and she's just sitting there and she's like, oh, well, I'm waiting to see Craig Kirby. And I go, well, I am Craig Kirby. The look on her face was like, oh, hell no. And I looked at her and I said, you've been seeing me for three days and you just never thought that I could be Craig Kirby. I said, wow. so now what do you want? We ended up being the best of friends, but she learned a lesson. You know, we all know you cannot judge a book by its cover. Unless it's hope interrupted, then you can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thank you that, for sharing that, Craig. That's a powerful story. It and is true. powerful. And, and the also, place. Go ahead, the, Jen. The place we went um, were very, um, it wasn't, it was not a diverse campus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we, I, I know with me and I know with you because I observed you and you were a very um, present person on campus. Um, and I know, it, and the Ohio thing sounds dumb, but being from Ohio made us even a little more exotic right. up, a li little more exotic up there. Right. I, I know that sounds strange today, but it, back then it was. But um, I knew we both walked around with our heads up and just did what needed to be done. Exactly, exactly. And, and Byron, let me tell you something. Jennifer is as she was as beautiful then as she is now. So I was just wow. happy to be your friend because people were like, you know her, you know Jennifer. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> man, what you want? Yeah, what do you need? What do you need? I can get you. Exactly. I can get you. Uh, I can get you what you need. Oh, that's that's great, Jennifer. Jennifer, I tell Jennifer, Jennifer does draw a crowd and and people's eyes. You know, people look up. Uh, to see, you know, it's curious like horses, right? When horses are curious, they look up and they're like, oh, is that Jennifer? Yep. That's kind of how, yep. that's what, that's, that's how it is when you're around her, so. Well, it's like that with you too, Byron, because Byron's kind of famous, but he doesn't talk about it, but he's, uh, he's, he's, he's a well-known person, and when you walk down the street with him, people know who he is. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he kind of cuts a big presence too. Thank I you. Want, I want to ask you, so, 
So you've been involved in the political arena. I was at the 88 convention too, but we didn't run into each other there. But as I said, we ran into each other um, in in Denver at um, Inverness. Right. Is that what it's called? Is that what the, I'm trying to remember? What the where the where uh, we were in the convention center actually when we ran into each other. Right. So you've been involved in um, political, and I can remember. I can remember shortly after college seeing you in Life Magazine in a giant picture with Jesse. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you know the picture. I do. Reverend Les Jesse Lewis Jackson. And you were in there, and I think you were on the phone or something. It was probably yeah. the early days of cell phones, and you had a giant cell phone next to your. I did. <laughs> but um, so you, Byron and I are both big fans of Reverend Jackson. We talk about him a lot in the book where we – both um, have followed his career closely. We both have liked what he has to say. So talk to us a little about your time in politics, because you were working in politics in a time when he was one of the most powerful forces. And um, no matter what people said against him, he just kept kept moving forward. He, he did. It was it was awesome to be with him. I mean, it was one of the greatest gifts I've ever had. I, I was with Reverend from. 1985, uh, December until January 1989. So it was it was following the 84 presidential campaign, going into the 88 presidential campaign. But it was also the time when the National Rainbow Coalition was created and being built, and it was phenomenal to see brown, yellow, black, and white. You know, we're we're all precious in God's sight. He literally took the mosaic of America and built a, kaleid a kaleidoscope. And it was the beauty of that scope, which is what we're living in now. I mean, I'll never forget Reverend talking about the minority being the majority in 2020. This was back in 1984, 85, when 2020 seemed like it was 200 years away. Everything that he talked about we have experienced or are experiencing. So he literally was a visionary. I mean, I think about Reverend and his work to win the future. His work to win the future was because he could talk and he could work with the future. Now, here's someone who every day I would hear him say, you can't teach what you don't know and you can't lead where you don't go. You don't send somebody from Harvard to Harlem unless they came from Harlem, because there are nuances, small, that people pick up on. It may be that eye wink. It may be that head nod. It may be that pinky, you know, little things. And unless you've experienced it, you just don't know. And you can catch yourself in a lot of trouble. And you know, again, as you end a lot of your, your chapters, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I heard Keep Hope Alive, I really would be a wealthy man. That <laughs> yes, you would. ingrained in me and in us. I mean, my traveling partner, Hosey Matthews. And so I jokingly tell that to people now each and every day. They're like, Craig, how you doing? I'm, I'm just trying to keep hope alive. That's it. And it's as trite or as simple as that may sound, it's really hard. 
because hope is the one thing that is eternal and that gives an individual a chance to start fresh every day, to start anew every day. Wow, that's great. Um, thank you for that. We are we are we're winding down to uh, to 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 the end here, Craig. But one of the, one of the things that I want to talk to ask you about is something that we talk a little bit about the book. So we did talk about a lot of the political discourse that's happening in America, and we talked about you know we started writing on the heels of the George Floyd murder, and and everything that happened after that. We saw people in the streets. We saw, and then we saw you know at the end of our book, we we I don't want to give away the the ending, but we we, we did we did see some things. We right. didn't talk about some things. So is there anything that gives you hope in America against the backdrop of what we saw last year? Um there is. Uh, you know, first off, I think what's happened over the past year has a lot of people in discovery. And what I mean by discovery, discovering how to listen to and then eventually learn from those who disagree with us is often more important than what we are prepared to say. But you've got to take that time. You've got to know that everyone, everyone has value to offer. I mean, I tell people frequently, just because your feet are lower than your eyes, that doesn't mean that your eyes are, are better because your feet take you where your eyes see. We all need each other. Byron needs Jennifer. Jennifer needs Byron. Craig needs Peggy. Peggy needs Yusuf. I mean, we all need each other because we each have talents to help one another out when we're in trouble. Wonderful. Absolutely. And, and I want to say before we go on to our hopeful moment, thank you for everything you're doing for young people. It's a big theme between Byron and me and in our book. And part of that is because we have, between Byron and me, we have seven daughters and you have children, Craig. And well, yeah, wow. girls can, yeah, they can give you a run for your money. <laughs> um, and and I, my spoiler alert is that doesn't necessarily stop because they're pushing 30, but you still love them nonetheless. But thank you for what you're doing for young people, because we are all in our 50s. And while we're not over the hill yet, the future is about our kids yeah. and their generation. And they're building this country and they're building what's going to happen next. And what you're doing is preparing young people to be good stewards of the United States and to behave, frankly, better than maybe our generation did. Well, thank you. We're trying to do what we can do. Before you do the um, the, the the hopeful moment, Jennifer, I'd, I'd love for Craig to talk to tell the audience how um, the organization can be supported. Oh, sure. Thank you, Byron. Thank you, Jennifer. If you go to www.golfmyfuturemygame.org, uh, that's our website. Then you go to the donate button. There's a donate tab. Just click on that donate tab and follow the rest of the script. And that would be wonderful because that will obviously provide us with financial resources so we can continue to do 
our programs. We are, are currently in five cities. We're in Washington, D.C., Detroit, Michigan, Dayton, Ohio, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and then we're going to be going into New Orleans, Louisiana in the fall. Great. That's Thank great. You. That's great. And and Byron's um, a native Louisiana. It's hard to say Louisiana. Louisiana. That's, right. that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right, Jennifer. So our hopeful moment, um, we end the book after January 6th, after the inauguration of Biden and Harris. Mm-hmm. And I am hopeful that we are living in a country right now where we are able to see hearings about what happened on January the 6th in our nation's capital. And to me, a lot of things, this has been political, a lot of things were covered up for a long time. And I'm glad that I feel we're living in a country where freedom of the press and freedom of speech is a little more evident than it was recently. Thank you, Jennifer. That was, right. a, that was a great hopeful moment. And um, thank you again, Craig, for joining us. And Thank you. And so we're going to be taken out by, um, by my godson, Starscream the Giant. Uh, and you can find him on Instagram with his, uh, with his wonderful music. So we'll see you next week. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was looking forward to writing this book with you. We hope to interview some uh, high impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope to learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.